before we begin our study, we want to lift uh, Nick Casino up to the Lord. Uh, Nick and Rhoda go here, and Nick is, he's been pretty ill for about a year, but he's in the hospital now, um, and really things aren't looking good unless the Lord intervenes, and so let's just hold him up in prayer. Lord, we lift Nick up to you, and we know that he is in your hands. We thank you that he's your child, and he's trusting in you, and he has. And Lord, we know that it's difficult, especially difficult for Rhoda, um, when you see your loved one suffering. And God, we know that it is within your power to touch him and heal him and restore him to health. And so though we're submitted to your will, we ask that that would be your will, and we ask that you would do that work in his body, Lord. Please just raise him back up and strengthen him, and Lord, we will give you all the glory if you, if you do that. But Lord, we know that he's yours, and so in the end, we submit to what you know is best, and Lord, we just place Nick and Rhoda into your hands, tonight that they would sense your will and and would know that God you are doing what's best for us and we thank you in Jesus name amen all right let's turn now to Romans chapter 9 after laying out the gospel in every way imaginable and talking about the Spirit-led life and how we are to live by faith and to live allowing the Spirit to work in our lives, to recognize that we're not perfect and we aren't going to be perfect until we get to heaven, but at the same time, we have within us the Spirit of God who can give us victory over the flesh, can give us that, um, that leading and guiding in our lives. And and that it's all by his strength, not by ours, and ultimately that he has given us such an incredible insurance policy that everything that happens turns out for our good because he loves us and he is at work in our lives and even during our poor choices, he is still plotting and planning ways that he can bless us through our failure and uh, just Ultimately, as the chapter ended with that amazing guarantee, that assurance that nothing can separate us from God's love, that we don't have to worry about somebody attacking us and therefore pulling us away from the presence of his love. Now, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul has to deal with the issue of the Jews, because although he was writing to a mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, and though Paul was called as the apostle to the Gentiles, yet the Jews were never far from his heart. And a lot of the Jewish people were upset with Paul because he was offering the gospel primarily to Gentiles, and they were accusing him of being a turncoat. They were accusing him of, of you know, turning his back on on all of that history and the whole Old Testament and that now he had kind of uh, made up a new religion. And a lot of times there are a lot of people who have that concept of the Old and New Testament. And Paul wanted to make sure that they understand that's not the case. What he was teaching was exactly what God had been teaching all along. It's just come to a 
fuller fruition because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But in chapters 9, 10, and 11, you see his heart, Paul's heart for the Jewish people, those who are biologically the uh, descendants of Israel. Uh, But you also see him level with them about how the Gentiles fit in with all of this um, and how it isn't God changing his mind. All of this fit in with God's plan always. It's not some kind of a new deal, really. It's, it's that the, the way was always open for anyone who would put faith in God to be able to come to him. That hasn't, that hasn't changed. Now, there are people who teach today that, you know, the, that God's finished with Israel that he wrote them off, doesn't care about them anymore, and now the church has become Israel. And there are some things in these chapters that you'll see how people could kind of read it that way, but there is also much in these chapters that make it very clear that that, that what is sometimes commonly called replacement theology, you're not going to find a good solid case for it here because, because Paul is continuing to talk about the Jews and God's desire and Paul's desire to see them saved and the fact that God isn't finished with them because of just because right now he is predominantly primarily dealing with Gentiles he makes it clear hey Jews can still accept Jesus anytime they want and God isn't finished with them he has made promises that he will fulfill um, and that really when we come to Christ we are just a part of those promises that God had made, it's all one program, really. And it's only through Jesus Christ that you can get saved. So it's hard for me to read chapters 9, 10, and 11 and come away believing that God's finished with Israel. Um, Some people see that simply because that's what they're bringing to the text. They've already made that assumption, so they kind of explain away whatever is in there that doesn't support that. so let's just dive into it. We read the first um, few verses last week, but we'll read them again. And Paul makes this strong, assertive statement. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. He's really certain of what he's saying. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Paul's heart was so burdened for Israel, and I just, I'm so challenged by the love that he has for the lost, those Jewish people who had not accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And as I said last week, I am so challenged that Paul loved them so much that he said he would give up, he would go to hell. He'd give up his own salvation if it meant that they would get saved. And I think how many of us feel that way about anyone that we know? much less lost people who we don't know. How many of us feel that way when we pray for Israel, 
when we pray for people that we know that don't know Christ? How many of us would even dare say such a thing? And Paul didn't throw it out flippantly, and we shouldn't either. And yet, as he says, I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience is bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I wish I could give my own salvation for these people to be saved. And the way that he sees them, and these are Jewish people who haven't yet accepted Christ. He doesn't see them as people who have missed out, who now other people get to experience their promises and their covenant and all those kinds of things. But he says, they're Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Though they haven't been saved, all of that has been offered to them and still applies to them. God's not finished with them, and Paul's heart is just burning for the lost. You know, and, and again, I, I just think, what are we willing to do to see lost people found? So often, we won't give a little time or a few bucks or, you know, much less to say, well, I'd give my salvation for it. I love it whatever it is that we can do. And, you know, we had our Cinco de Mayo celebration and outreach here yesterday. And if you, if you came and helped out with that, thanks. It was awesome. If you missed it, you really missed something special. We had so many people who were just giving out the love of Jesus and just reaching out to the Hispanic people from the community here. And it was a beautiful thing. It really was a, was a wonderful evening as God used... Um, our people to just reach out with love and give them some fun and some blessing and Bibles were given out and things like that and they heard about the Lord and so you know we did something like that and it was a, it was a hassle I mean it took it made a mess and took a lot of people doing a lot of stuff and cost some money and and you know always the idea is well you know is that really worth it I guess it depends what lost people are worth to you. You could look at every missionary and then you want to keep score and decide, you know, okay, how much money should we invest in missions? Don't we have needs? Don't we have, you know, people who are needy right here that we could give our money to instead of sending the money overseas and pouring it into the black hole of missions? Well, I guess it depends on how valuable lost people are to you. Paul he wouldn't put a price on it. His price was, I'd go to hell to see people get saved. And that's a real challenge to all of us. What are, are we willing to speak up and maybe be embarrassed to share the gospel with someone or go out of our way, inconvenience ourselves in some way or you know, to, to give ourselves to serve God in a, even a simple way? Like, Are we willing to teach Sunday school to see if God might use us to lead some children to spend an eternity in heaven? Or, you know, are we just a little too busy for that? Are we a little too important for that? I'm not, sugge- I'm not guilting you. I'm not suggesting, man, you better get busy. Do it. But all I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying every one of us, where is our heart for the lost compared to where Paul's heart was for the lost? I personally am greatly challenged by his heart for, in this case, lost Jewish people, but that extends to anyone who's 
who is without Christ. And, and, uh, and I don't think any of us should ever be really comfortable with having anything less than that kind of concern for people who, who are lost. Um, it challenges me anyway, and, and uh, I'm not going to take up a special missions offering or anything, but you get the point. It's, do we care like that? He does. Paul said, I, you know, you don't see this selfish, I got mine, I'm going to heaven, that's all I care about. It's like I'm ready to turn around at the doors of heaven <coughs> and go to hell if it means somebody else can go into heaven. That's, that's commitment. That's amazing. You know, it's funny, sometimes we are afraid to think like that because we're afraid that God will send us to hell. <laughs> Obviously, you have to read it in the context of the end of chapter 8. Paul knew there was no way he could be accursed. And yet, if he could, that was his heart. That was how much he cared. And talking about them, he continues in verse 5, of whom are the fathers, <coughs> and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. He says these Jewish people, I mean, that's where all of our Old Testament came from, our whole heritage comes from them, and Jesus, the Messiah, actually came forth from the Jewish people, who is overall the eternally blessed God, Amen. So he kind of gets caught up in who Jesus is and gives this little benediction and says amen. He's not anywhere near finished. But, you know, verse 5, by the way, is a, is a great verse for the deity of Christ. There are some versions that translate this in a weaker way and insert commas in places so that this is nebulous, almost as if they were afraid to have a verse translate as literally as this was. Even the King James has a little bit of an unfortunate um, punctuation put in there to make this nebulous. It's, it's not nebulous. It's very clear. And so uh, our translation here is correct. Jesus is overall, and he is the eternally blessed God. He's blessed forever. He was always there. He was always God. Verse 6, but... It is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. So he's not whining and saying, man, God did all this and it didn't work. It's God failed somehow and nobody got it. It's not that it's of no effect. They are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, just because you have Jewish blood does not make you a, someone who inherits all those promises because to the Jewish people, there was still a demand for a response. It was still necessary for them to have faith. So if you were born into the promise, that was great. But still, the only way to appropriate the promise is for you to personally respond in faith. And so historically, always, that was the case. There are some people who were Jewish, and yet they rejected God. And, you know, vast numbers of them did. And so he's saying, hey, it's not that God failed because his intention was to save everyone. God is not a universalist. He makes, it, makes the offer to everyone, 
But his point here is, come on, in order to really, really receive the promises of God, you have to believe. Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Now he begins to illustrate this from the history of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he goes, think about Abraham. He, he had promises made to his seed, but that didn't mean every one of your seed. Remember, it was through Isaac that the promise would be carried. But Abraham, in the flesh, had another son, and that son was um, you know, with, with Hagar, his wife's handmaid, and Ishmael was not the line that would fulfill the promises. So he's referring back to that story, and he's going, it's not just anyone who's related. You don't get this by biological inheritance. In Isaac, your seed will be called, in verse 7. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. So he says, think about that. Abraham just couldn't go and reproduce anyone and have them automatically inherit the promises. God's problem, promises were very specific. And he had said it was going to be through Sarah, and therefore you had to achieve these promises through God's purposes and through his plan and through his will. You couldn't make it happen. Everyone who was related didn't get in automatically. There's still a matter of faith. And he goes on to say, not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau have I hated. Now he says, in the case of Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah was pregnant with twins. And God had prophesied even beforehand that the elder would serve the younger. And he says this was God's election, this was God's choice. And then that quote from Malachi, you know, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, I'm not going to pretend that this isn't complicated and difficult to understand. But his point was, it wasn't through the goodness of, you know, uh, the two boys. You know, it wasn't through Jacob, you know, that somehow God saw him and said, you know, I choose him on the basis of his goodness. He goes, it was God's election. He did it before they did anything. Now, at the same time, God certainly knew that one of the boys, Jacob, would have a heart for the things of God and that Esau wouldn't. So you can't exclude that. But his point was they didn't do anything to earn, you know, to either be saved or condemned, if you will. And that God knew all along and that he had planned his seed and knew it was going to go through the younger. Now remember that story, how it happened 
was a complete con job. It really wasn't Jacob being so righteous. It was Jacob being sneaky in a way that helped him to get the birthright and the blessing. So it wasn't at all that he was going to do the right thing. But God knew what was going to happen, and God used even their sin to bring about his plan and his will. Now, there are a lot of people who look at, hey, wait, why he, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? That's not fair. God just did that? Well, for one thing, that verse that says that, that Paul is quoting, is in Malachi. It was generations after it happened. It was after Esau sold out very foolishly his, his birthright and then lost his blessing by being sloppy. And so it was in retrospect that God said this. But you begin to see the picture develop where, you know, this is a problem. This is kind of difficult to explain that it seemed, I mean, we would like to say that God just turns everyone free and then he makes his plans based on our plans and our response. But it's not that simple. And so anyone who, who takes the position that God's election, God's choice is based on our merit, then Romans Nine gives you a real problem with that view. But at the same time, to, to have that God chooses, you know, willy-nilly just, you know, he picks, and then we are just victims of that choice. He predestines some for heaven and some for hell, and you can't do anything about it. <coughs> You're going to have a problem as we read on in the passage, especially in chapter 10, where he makes it really clear that, no, everybody has a choice, everybody has an option. But here he is saying that there's more to it than you realize, and that, in fact, God doesn't just choose deserving people. He's going to go on and make it clear God knows what's going on, and ultimately, God chooses those who have faith, but then he gives you the faith so you don't get any credit for the faith. But how all this works out, um, Paul is, is delving into, and then he really doesn't give us really satisfactory answers because as you read on in verse 14, he says, so what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. So you start to delve into these areas and you start going, wait a minute, I don't think this is fair. But he goes, of course not. You have to understand everything God does is, is perfectly fair. It's righteous and just. He can't do anything that's unrighteous. And so he goes on to say, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God says, first of all, you better watch it here. I can have mercy on whomever I have mercy. I can do whatever I want. Okay, so you don't have the right to sit in judgment on me. Now, this is because all have sinned. If there were righteous people who deserved salvation, 
then it wouldn't be fair for God to, you know, condemn some of them and save some of them. If any of us were, were in any way worthy, then certainly for God to pick and choose wouldn't be fair. But we're talking about mercy. And so if everyone is condemned and God is able to save some, is he wrong to do that? If you saw a lot of people running headlong toward a cliff and were all just plummeting to their death, and you knew that you wouldn't be able to save them all, you knew for some reason, maybe because they would be fighting you off or for whatever reason, you were able to save some, would it be good to save some or would it be better to save none and say, there, you're all even? See, for God, what's right is not egalitarianism, that everyone gets the same deal. God's mercy is shown wherever he wants to have his mercy. And let's remember, he is righteous. Now, he allows certain people to reject him. Is that wrong? Well, see, because God knows everything, he knows there are certain people who would not appreciate a relationship with him even if he forced them to it. They'd complain about it. And there are some people who even with every opportunity to get saved, like so many of the people in this country, they would rather not. They'd rather not submit their lives to God. And it's not wrong of God to allow them to have that choice. It's not wrong of God to then show mercy on those who put their faith in him. And so, as difficult as this is to comprehend, and people have lied about it for all, have, have argued and twisted and turned, and you know, let's just realize this is difficult. But it says, uh, you know, the way that he does it, it has to do with his mercy. You'll say to me then, verse 19, Oh, first of all, verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. He's talking about, well, back up verse 17, Pharaoh. Scripture says to the Pharaoh, I'm doing this backwards. Now, notice verse 16 says, this is important, I read it, but I didn't comment on it. It's not of him who wills. It's not to say that we don't will, but it's not our will that gets us saved, nor of him who runs. It's not what you do, but of God who shows mercy. Ultimately, whatever occasions his mercy, our will can't save us, and our goodness and our works can't save us. So ultimately, salvation has to come from him. And then he uses the example of Pharaoh and says, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. God chose Pharaoh for a specific purpose. And he was going to use Pharaoh in order to set his people free. But at the same time, if you read it, if you read the story, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it says that several times. And then it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart later. See, Pharaoh chose to go against God. So ultimately, God said, okay, fine. 
And God went ahead and honored Pharaoh's choice, and he made Pharaoh's heart so hard that now he couldn't respond. It's perhaps similar to over in Hebrews chapter 6 when it talks about people who have uh, partaken of the heavenly gift and the powers of the age to come and all, uh, that then they turn away from God. It's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance because he's put Jesus to open shame, crucified him again. The point there in Hebrews is that there are certain people who, whatever they do, they come so close, and then they decide to turn away. You can do that in such a way that your heart becomes so hard that now it's impossible for you to repent. You've gone so far that you think you've already done it. I, I know people who are, they, they were so indoctrinated in Christianity, and they knew it so well, and then fell away from it totally, how are they going to ever go back because they think they've already had it, and they're not likely to return to it, and it's a sad spot. Now, there are always people who are worried about this, uh-oh, I think I've done that. No, you haven't, because if you care, you haven't done it. If you're worried that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, you didn't commit it because the only way you can worry about it is if the Holy Spirit is in you convicting you of sin. But if you ever get to the point where you don't even care anymore, maybe you did it and you won't care. If you start caring, I guess you didn't do it. But here with Pharaoh, he finally got towards the end where God said, I'm not going to mess with you any longer. And God just left him in his choice. He left him in his decision and then made it impossible for him to turn around. But before that, God was giving him every opportunity. God had a purpose and God used him. So, as he says, then it's not of the one who wills, nor of the one who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That was God. Therefore, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. So however you sort all this out, don't sit in judgment on God. He has a right to do whatever he wants to do. And we should never say that, well, if God did this, then he's not fair. No, whatever God did is good. And it's not just good because he did it. You know, let's, let's get this straight. It's not just that you know, there are sometimes parents who will use their parental authority and they will go, because I said, that's why. My reason why I did it is because I said so. And I'm the parent and what I say goes. Or a boss who says, look, I'm the boss, whatever I say goes. That's not how God is. God is perfect. So if you are the perfect parent, if you are the perfect boss, then yes, of course. By definition, whatever you do will be right. We're not just talking about his authority. We're also talking about his nature and his goodness. And so if we are going to figure God out to any respect, we have to start with the assumption that God is good, really good, not just good because he has the right to destroy people if he wants to, that Whatever happens is the best possible thing that could happen. And he works with imperfect vehicles in order to bring about his perfect will. But the argument is really clear. Let's not in any way devise a theology 
that has God doing something bad or wrong. You know, if, if you reject God based on you see that some of what he does just doesn't seem good, then you're judging whether or not that's good, but you don't have a right to do that. He knows more than you. It's not just, he's not just hanging on to his authority. <coughs> he's hanging on to his goodness and his omniscience. And so you can be assured that how he deals with every decision that people make is the best way for him to deal with our decisions. And because he isn't willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, and because all don't come to repentance, it's because God knows that there was no righteous way for everyone to get saved. I hate to accept that because I foolishly think I could have come up with one if I was God. But God knows more than I do, and he's way more righteous than I am. So I would bend the rules. I would be unrighteous. You know, and in this life, we do that with authority. Someone has authority, they're able to bend the rules. You know, police officers, if they pull you over, they can give you a ticket, that's what the law says, or they can give you a warning. If they like you, if they know you, if you show them your badge, is that technically legal or correct? No. But that's what they do, and there have been many times when I was thankful. But, <laughs> see, that's us. And the truth is, the problem is, and I, and I defend that, by the way. The reason is because our laws aren't perfect. Our system isn't perfect. They don't catch everyone. So the way that we deal with the law is so arbitrary that our legal system, in order to be semi-reasonable, has to walk a balance between plea bargains and negotiations and, and discernment and all those sorts of things, a huge opportunity for injustice to occur. But when somebody pulls someone over for speeding and they let them go, that's, that is no more wrong than for someone to be speeding and there not to be a cop there and they get pulled over, okay? And so in this world, it's imperfect. The point is, with God, he is perfect. He sees everything and he knows everything. And he is absolutely righteous. And because he's absolutely righteous, then what he does is the best response that he can make in the world that he has created, which includes the fact that people have choice. And so don't get the idea that, that God just makes everyone without choice. It's really clear from as we go through this, this uh, next couple chapters that that isn't the case. But what God does is right, and so what Paul is saying, as we unwrap all this stuff, don't jump to a conclusion that, hey, wait a minute, if it's God's choice, that's not fair. He's going, no, God can do whatever he wants, and in the final analysis, what he wants is the absolute best thing to do. It's not just don't question God because you don't have any business questioning God. 
It's the idea of, no, when we're talking about God, let's start with the fact that he's perfect. So whatever it is that he did was perfect, and now let's unravel it after that. Does that make sense? So, I mean, as much as it can. All you, all you guys are, yeah, yeah, I totally understand it. I'm like, wow, I don't, but I kind of, I'm getting it. <laughs> and, and so then they say, hey, wait a minute, in verse 19, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Now the questioner says, but wait a minute. If it's God's will, it must be irresistible. That's what the Calvinists called irresistible grace. That if he chooses you, he gives you grace and you can't turn it down. So they're going, but that's not fair. If he doesn't answer whether it is irresistible or not, he just, when they said, well, who can resist him? He says, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it? Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory? even as whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. So he says, we're getting into an area where you aren't going to be able to completely understand it, but you're also getting into an area where you're bordering on blasphemy when you presume that you could go, then wait a minute, we don't have a choice. It's all God. That's a really dangerous place to be. And Paul doesn't go there. And, and some people who in, get over-consumed in Reformed theology take this logic and they develop it and they say, it's irresistible. Therefore, if God saves some people and damns other people, then if he chose the people over on this side for salvation the people over on this side for condemnation, why in the world did he even make the people over on this side? And I guess he made them just so he could destroy them. And he made these people so they could get saved, and it was all predetermined before, and what responsibility could a person possibly have, and therefore how fair is this? And that's something that that goes against the nature of God. See, however you calculate it, if God is responsible for evil, then you've, you've messed up. Because God is good. At his very essence, he's good. And what he does is perfect. So God did not want Satan to rebel. God did not want Adam and Eve to sin. God does not want you to do what you're doing when you're in rebellion against God. He doesn't control us like robots. We're not zombies. Because if that was the case, that would be a slam on God's nature. 
And so that's kind of where they're going and with what they're asking, like, but hey, wait a minute. Can, can anyone resist God's will? Therefore, is everything that happening, is that God's will? And so again, he says, first of all, we're talking potter and clay. The potter has a right to do whatever he wants with the clay. The potter knows best how to make good pottery out of clay. And the implication is that's what God's doing. But then he says, you know, each vessel has a different purpose, and that's okay. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, doesn't say that he was, but what if he's wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, and so he puts up with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. He says, okay, what if God allows certain things to exist, certain people to exist, because by their existence you can see the value of other vessels? Now, this becomes difficult, but it gets into the idea of why does God, and as soon as you say, why does God, your answer should be, I don't know. But why does he let people choose? Why did he create a world where evil was possible? And, you know, if you spend much time thinking about it, it'll spin your brain pretty good. But, but and, and again, I'm not going to come up with a perfect solution for it. But if, if we didn't have a choice, would anyone be good? What would make good good? There are so many things that if we were robots, the the highest values that we have, the highest values that God has, would be impossible. For instance, we value something like loyalty. We love it when there's someone who will be there supporting us and sticking up for us when others don't. Whoops. Whoops when others don't. So would you ever know loyalty if some people didn't stick up for you? I don't think so. We appreciate love. What is love? When someone puts you above others, when someone chooses to devote themselves to you at the exclusion of others, it's kind of, it wouldn't be love if that was all it was. There, there has to be something else, bravery, faithfulness, all of the value. You go down the list of every value that we value in terms of character, and again, I can't understand it all completely, but I recognize that without the environment that allows for something to not be that way, it wouldn't be that way goodness and righteousness and things like that just couldn't exist. Now, this is kind of amazing when you think of God, because you go, but wait a minute. God is brave and righteous and good and loving, and how do you see that? Well, for one thing, he allows others not to, and that demonstrates who he is by contrast, but also God, because he wasn't created by anyone and doesn't have any built-in 
value or purpose outside of himself. He's transcendent. I believe that God could do evil. I just believe that he has chosen to never do evil. But there isn't anything to say that he couldn't. I believe that Jesus, when he came to earth, tempted in everything as we are, yet without sin, could Jesus have sinned? Wow, it would have really tipped reality upside down. But I don't see how you can be tempted unless it's possible for you to do it. So, but God is perfect. Therefore, he always makes the right choice. But for man, Adam and Eve in the garden, they were untested, but they were perfect. God saw them and said, it's very good. And yet, they were given a choice, and immediately they made the wrong choice. We too are given choices, though in a limited sphere. We, I mean, I suppose we have the choice to always do good, because each incident that we do, we have a choice. But we're pulling a nature that drags us down, and our tendency like Adam and Eve, is to do the wrong thing. But that does give us opportunities to do the right things. And the people that you know that you really appreciate, if it wasn't for other people, would you appreciate them? Would you take them for granted? And so what he's saying here is, God, you know, not that God just decided here, I'm going to make a... a vessel for dishonor. God doesn't have to make vessels for dishonor. There are plenty of people who are volunteering to do the job. But the real question is, why does he allow evil to continue? And the answer to that is, he has good reasons why he allows these vessels, once they have dishonored themselves, and they're always held responsible for that, but when they dishonor themselves, he allows them to exist because that gives the vessels for honor, the opportunity to be honorable. It sets, a, it sets an environment whereby there are opportunities for us to show the goodness that God has placed within us. And so you can criticize the environment and you can decide that that's not the best way to do it. But again, as we've talked about before, I would ask you, how many of you think you would have come to Jesus Christ if you hadn't gone through hard times? How many of you would have chosen to submit your life to Jesus Christ if you hadn't been burned and wounded and made mistakes and failed? And how many of you tried almost everything else before you finally came to him? Well, for most of us, that's the answer. Yeah, there are some people who just almost from birth. They're raised in a great environment and they know the love of God and they never rebel against it. But I know plenty of kids who have almost had the perfect environment and still rebelled. And that's, that's not such a bad thing. The fact that this world is in such bad shape also creates an incredible environment for God to reveal himself to people. You ever wonder why a place that's really blessed the gospel can almost go nowhere in it. I mean, Europe is in a time of relative prosperity, as is the West. And yet, you know, you see churches being boarded up and sold for other purposes. And, and then you go look at China, where, you know, 
there are many people who are being threatened, or Vietnam, where there are parts of that country where you can get, you can get killed for having a church, and yet people are getting saved, and they're willing to. I remember when Steve was over in Vietnam, these little churches way up in the hill country where they could get in so much trouble for having a church, and yet when he asked them, you know, well, what can we send you? What do you want? They said, we want a cross. They want a cross to stick up on their church and advertise that they're breaking the law. That's commitment. Whereas today, there are churches in our country that try to make their church look as little like a church as possible so that nobody suspects it's a church. And then you come in and the music and everything else is all conducive to like, yeah, we're not church at all. Don't worry. And we don't act like a church because we're so afraid of people being offended by what the church is. No wonder the church is thriving where it's being persecuted. Now, and that's undeniable. That's been the case throughout history. The greatest moments of real growth in the church are the times of, of, of difficulty for the church. The first century, it started that way, and it just boomed. So why is that? I mean, I think a part of it is that there's a contrast. People don't kind of come to the Lord. They don't sort of, you know, one foot in the church and one foot in the world. They realize, no, this is a real tough commitment to make. And so the church becomes healthier under persecution. And in the same way, that's true for all of us. And we sit in judgment over God, like, why does he allow all this pain? And then we go, I have to admit, when I've gone through this pain, it's drawn me closer to the Lord than I've ever been before. Wow. That's a trip. I know people when Myrene came down with cancer, and it's like, oh no, how could God allow such a thing? I just, and there are people who would say, well, you just, you know, you need to say no to it. God's not going to do that and everything. And then you see what happens with the way that she dealt with it, and it wasn't always easy, and it was a trial, and it was difficult, but she would be the first one to tell you. If you don't believe me, ask her after church. She's closer to God after having gone through that than she was before. And she was close to God before. But every one of us, and we don't like that. In America today, that's a real threat. We would rather believe that God wants us to live lives that are pain-free. And so we take medicine. We do everything we can do to try to make sure there's no pain in life. And yet the truth is God knows how to bring us closer to him. He knows how to make us grow. And until we understand that, the world's going to look really unfair. But Paul's point here is even in God trying to deal with his people and God wanting to bring them to himself, he understood that his plan is going to include allowing vessels of dishonor, allowing people who will reject him, allowing people who turn their back on him. Verse 24, even as whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It's the same thing. His plan includes all of that. He knows how best to do it. And a part of his plan is to allow people to do things that are destructive to themselves. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, 
and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So he cites Hosea, and remember he had the kids, and one of them, Noemi, was not my people, and he said one day it's going to happen, and the idea was it was prophetically referring to the day when even Gentiles would become a Christian. He goes, it was there even in Hosea. And then he says, Isaiah too. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. Okay, not all of them will be saved. Only some of them will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. It's going to be the right thing to do when he cuts it short. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, Unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. In other words, Isaiah spoke of this, that not everyone who had the the chance would take it. Only a remnant would be remained. And he said, the truth is, unless God had preserved the remnant, unless he had supernaturally manifested his mercy and grace, then we all would have been wiped out. Paul's point is we should be glad that anybody gets saved because nobody deserves it. Nobody would go choose it on their own. It's only those who respond to the grace of God and put their faith in him that end up getting saved. And so verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness? That's exactly what he's saying. Are you telling me that Israel was trying really hard to follow the law, and they didn't get it? And there were Gentiles who didn't even try, but they put their faith in God and they received righteousness? That doesn't sound right. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Again from Isaiah. And referring ultimately, no, it's belief that brings you into a saving relationship. It's not what you do. So I don't care how hard you try, trying won't do it. Only belief does it. Only faith can get you saved. Faith was the only thing that could save you in the Old Testament. Faith is the only thing that will save us today. We look at people of other religions and go, how in the world could God condemn somebody who has such good intentions. You mean a really deeply sincere, you know, um, follower of Islam who's so devoted that they lay their life on the line? God's going to condemn him? You mean a, a Buddhist who is so into Buddhism and peace and, and, and wisdom and karma and all? You mean... God's going to condemn him? A Jew who rejects Jesus Christ? You think God's going to condemn them? 
No, God's not going to condemn any of them. They're condemned already until they come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so look at what he provides. Did, does he not give them that opportunity? We're going to see more of that later in chapter 10. But the whole thing is, the only way that you can get saved is by faith, is by belief. And any way you carve it up, in any way you try to understand it, in any way you try to explain it, sorry, that's what it takes. Because faith is that which will link us to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so those who have faith, they get mercy. Those who don't have faith don't get mercy. And that's the most fair thing that there is because that's the only righteous way that God can save people is by his grace through faith. And so it's far from arbitrary. And it's not that God takes pleasure in people being condemned. People condemn themselves when they reject him. And he opens the opportunity to everyone to receive him and, you know, if you have somebody who really has faith and they don't get saved, now you can make a case. But if you think what God is doing isn't fair, then I would just challenge you to put your faith in him. You go, I don't want to. Well, okay. You had your chance. But that's not fair. Go ahead, put your faith in him. Try it right tonight. Put your trust in him. Give your life to him. I don't want to do that. What's not fair? See, oh, but what if I'm not chosen? We can find out. Just accept him. Put your faith in him. Well, I don't think I can do that. Well, I guess you're not chosen. But that's not fair. Get on your knees. But I don't want to. Well, why do you want God to force you into heaven? Why would you want him to make you get saved? And do you really think you'd enjoy an eternity of worshiping someone that you reject? Worshiping someone that you think you know better than he does and, and what he is doing isn't fair? He always extends the offer. Pharaoh had the offer. Every Jew that rejected Jesus Christ had the offer. And he's going to get into that more in chapter 10 and make it really clear. But what we also want to understand is, man, God is working brilliantly behind the scenes in order to bring things to the point where everyone that he can possibly save, he will. Everyone who would ever want to be saved will be saved. Everyone who would ever have a heart to follow him has got it made. And his eternal plan is active in doing that. And when we become confused, we should never take our interpretation and end up somehow with God being mean or unfair. Remember, you know... <coughs> People who've never heard about Jesus, what's going to happen to them? I really don't know. But I know that God has a brilliant plan.
for how to deal with those people. And when we see it and it's all done, we're going to go, that was perfect. That was the most fair thing you ever could have done. We're not going to be in heaven and going pouting because I know there are some people who ought to be here that aren't. It's just not fair. If Oprah can't be in heaven, I don't want to be in heaven. Hey, if that's the way you feel, don't go. Or pray that Oprah will end up in heaven. Pray that she'll have her faith in Jesus Christ alone. I mean, that should be our heart. But when he gets it all finished, it's all going to be perfect, and it's all going to fit in with his sovereignty, his justice, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. (laughs) And so you can't argue with that. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, how we thank you for your plan, for your goodness, for the fact that we don't have to sit and decide whether what's happened is right or not. We know you're, you're brilliant. And of course, you've done it. You've done what you can do. And there's a lot of bad things, and we understand that, and we don't want to blame you for any of them. But we know that you have allowed that in order to allow your glory. And you know what's best. We wouldn't want to spend an eternity in heaven like a bunch of robots. We want to spend an eternity in heaven celebrating because it was your grace that put us there. It was our faith that connected us with you. And so thank you for this amazing plan of yours. Lord, as we enter into a time of communion now, we are reminded. We, we see the example of Paul. He was willing to die and suffer the sin and go to hell for the people that he loved. But he had that heart because you showed it first. Jesus, you were willing to take that step, to allow yourself to be condemned so that we could be saved. And so as we remember what you did for us, Lord, make it with all gratitude. And, and we're sorry when we pass judgment on you. That's so stupid. With what you've done for us, we have no right to question how you finish what you've started. And so as we partake in communion, Lord, we are submitting ourselves to you acknowledging that you are God and that we are not. In Jesus' name, amen.